How many here today, I know some of you didn't come forward for prayer, but you still have needs in your life, and uh, we're going to just do that by an expression. When I lead in prayer, we just raise our hands, lift our burdens. I want to also remember Pastor Mark and your family in prayer, Mark. Uh, Mark's mother passed away here on Monday, early Tuesday morning, and uh, the funeral was already, took place here on Saturday. Mark actually officiated his mom's funeral, so did a great job, Mark, super job. It was very, very moving. I know how hard that was. I did my mother's funeral too, so challenging. Anyways, we're going to pray for Bill, especially, and your sisters as well. So let's pray for all of the needs. Let's just lift our hands before God. Father, we thank you today. What a gracious God you are. You're kind to us. Your mercies are new every morning. You bring comfort to us in our time of grief. Pray for Mark and his family, his dad, Bill, and his sister's Lord, we just commit them to your grace and care and comfort in the days to come. We thank you for Lorraine and her testimony. We thank you for the, each one of us. I know that Kevin lost his dad a few weeks ago as well. We lift him and his family. So many needs are represented in the human family, Father, but you care for each of us. Your word declares that even the hairs of our head are numbered by you, and it tells me that you're interested in even the smallest details of our lives. And so we commit each of these needs to you today. We know that you care for us, and we know that you're hearing our cry. We know that you're ministering to our, our needs, and you're sustaining us in this life by your grace and goodness, and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. I am actually in the New Testament today. Wow, I've been preaching from the Old Testament so long, and yes, last week I even spoke from the book of Genesis, but today we're in the Gospel of Luke. And I thought it was interesting when I was talking about Joseph's life and we talked about the road to a God-given dream. Someone asked me within 24 hours, what's our purpose? What's our dream? You know, what's my dream? What's my purpose, pastor? And so I just thought it would be interesting to focus in on discovering your purpose in life and how to get there. How many think that's a very interesting idea? Like, why are we here? Now, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, he said something very interesting. We're going to discover God's purpose when we spend time knowing God's word. How many know you can't know God's purpose apart from knowing God and his word for your life? And then it's not enough to just be listening to it. We need to be applying it. Jesus describes this way in an analogy of our lives when they're not uh, putting into practice what we're hearing, it becomes very devastating. And he says it this way in Matthew's gospel. We'll get to Luke, but Matthew says, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man or woman who builds their house on a sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat upon the house, and it fell with a great crash. Times of earthly destruction devastation, heartache, remind us about what really matters in life. It forces us to ask questions. What is life all about? What should our goal be and what should our purpose be? Well, for the Christian, the answer is found in Scripture. We look there. That's the operating manual, right? You know, God designed us for a purpose. This is the operating manual. How many know if you get some appliance and you don't look at the operating manual, you may have problems down the road? Very important we look there. We are called to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple, a follower. 
And ultimately, we are called to be disciple makers, helping others follow Jesus Christ. That's one of our key purposes. You could say, well, my key purpose is to worship God. I say, yes, that's true. But part of worshiping God is making disciples. You see, worship is a bigger word. This is a, a very specific part of that purpose. So what does a disciple look like? We can say that a disciple is a person who looks like Jesus, but then the question is, what does Jesus look like, right? You know, there's a wall near the main entrance to the Alamo in San Antonio, Texas. There's a portrait with a very unusual inscription. It says, James Butler Bonham. No picture of him exists. This picture, this portrait is a picture of his nephew, Major James Bonham. He's deceased and he greatly resembled his uncle. In other words, it was placed here by the family that people may know the appearance of a man who died for freedom. Since there's no literal portrait of Jesus that exists, the only way we get an idea of what he looks like is seen in the lives of his true followers. That's the portrait. So we need to get a glimpse of what it means to follow Christ. And then we're gonna look at very closely this passage from Luke's gospel when he's retelling the Sermon on the Mount. Now, some people would argue this is a, you know, a different sermon because it's on the plane, for one. But he's using some of the ideas from the Sermon on the Mount. How many know Jesus probably said some things over again? He, you know, he repeated himself to different groups of people. And so here we see a very interesting statement that Matthew does not mention in the Sermon on the Mount, but Luke mentions it on what we call the Sermon on the Plain. It's found in verse 40 of chapter 6. It says, A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. King James says, Everyone who is perfect will be like his teacher. In other words, uh, the, you know, that word perfect really means coming to the, uh, the end point, the destination, the goal. You're, you know, the goal of our lives is to become like Jesus. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says it this way, and we know that in all things, that means good things and bad things. There's a lot of good things, a lot of bad things in life, right? But we know that in everything in life, all of these things, God is working for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined. So what did God predestine? He predestined us to be conformed into the likeness of his son. So here it is. God is saying, my goal for every one of my children is to design us in such a way that we'd reflect the nature and person of Jesus Christ. We'd become like him. To be a fully actualized, fully human being, I think means to fulfill what God intended. That's the design. And what does that look like? It looks like Jesus. Jesus is a model of the perfect human being. If you want to know what your life should look like, it should look like Jesus. You go, well, yeah, but my life doesn't quite look like Jesus, Pastor. Uh, <clears throat> we're not quite there yet. I know. He's working on us. But here's the good news. What you once were, you're, you're not anymore. You're different than that. And what you currently are, God's not done with you. He's going to keep developing and fashioning you and conforming you into the image of his, of his son. So, uh, the obvious question is, okay, so what is God really fashioning inside of us? Obviously, we all look different on the outside, but he's trying to develop the character of Christ within all of us, that you and I reflect that character. And so in Luke chapter 6, verse 37 to 48, 
we're going to take a look at three quick snapshots at the heart or attitude or the character of Christ. And I want to look at them. And the first one is simply Jesus' non-judgmental attitude. Now, we're speaking here of being non-censoring towards other people. You know, I, I could summarize it by saying this, that you and I develop an attitude that we show respect for every human being. That every human being has dignity and value. You say, why? Because God created them in his image. And so, therefore, we need to treat people with deep respect. You know, we treat a lot of things in life with respect, but we need to treat people with the highest respect, and God even above that. Uh, to be like Jesus is to have this hard attitude towards people and not write people off. You know, that's a temptation sometimes. There are people who have failed in this life. And so I'm noticing in the church probably two uh, attitudes that are unhealthy. The first one is simply this, that the church sometimes in trying to be loving basically tells people it's okay to just be who they are. And they leave them in their brokenness. In other words, they're telling people it's okay to be broken but they're not helping them get better, okay? So that's not loving. That's, that's not the right response to that problem. On the other side, you have, the other side of the church is saying, you guys are a mess, straighten up. <laughs> you know, it's a very condemning, condescending attitude. But the reality is, everyone in this room who know Christ, we were saved by grace. We can't walk around and go, I, I am what I am, but we have to finish the sentence, by the grace of God. And so for us to look down on any single person, it's, it's really we're negating the message of the gospel. And so the, the religious leaders in Jesus' time, that's what they did. They became very legalistic. They were harsh. They were judgmental. They were critical. And they had, would have nothing to do with sinners. So now there's a, there's a middle of the road here. Those are the two extremes. So what's, what should we be treating people like? We should be treating them like Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He was a friend of sinners. Isn't that interesting? He loved people, and people picked up on that. As a matter of fact, he was accused of actually doing what the sinners did, but he didn't do that. He wasn't a sinner because Jesus never sinned, but he loved people, and it came across, and the people responded to that because the greatest need that you and I have in this life is to be loved, to be accepted, to be understood. So they were accusing Jesus. Here the religious leaders said this, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard. Uh, it's pretty, pretty nasty words. How many know Jesus was neither a glutton nor a drunkard? Does anybody know that? How do you know that, Pastor? Because he never sinned. And those, those two things are sins. But they also accused him, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, guilty as charged. Jesus certainly was a friend of the tax collector and the sinner. You see, isn't it amazing how often lies always take on some truth to them? First part is untrue. Last part, totally true. Jesus was a friend of people. He cared about people. And the common people heard him gladly. You know, that's why, you know, a lot of people that had a lot of spiritual junk in their life, baggage, sin in their life, they, were, they came to Jesus because, and this is so beautiful, Jesus was frustrated with the Pharisees because they were misrepresenting God. How do you know that, Pastor? Because Jesus is God. And Jesus wanted people to understand he didn't come into the world to condemn it. He came to save it. This is what we need to understand. We're not here to condemn people. We're here to do what Jesus did. We're here to help people find salvation in Jesus Christ. That's the answer. And so the heart of Christ is one of compassion, 
rather than judgment and censorship of people. And I think that is extremely powerful. People who ex exhibit the spirit of judgment and censorship, well, they're just bullying people because of their own insecurities. How's that? You know, when people put people down, it's because they themselves are insecure. That's the reason they do that. We need to understand that. They're broken. So the people that are doing all that stuff, they, they're trying to build themselves up at other people's expense. Jesus did not do that. Um, now, he warns here against that proud and critical heart attitude. And so the end product of a disciple then is we're going to be like Christ. So we're not here to judge people. So I'm going to look at the text of Scripture we're going to look at today, starting in verse 37. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. This has been one of the most misunderstood texts I've ever seen in my life. And I'll tell you why, because we take it out of context. What, what we think it's saying, and this is what I hear people say, you can't judge me because God told us not to judge. No, he said, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. That's the context. He's not suggesting that you and I don't evaluate things. He, matter of fact, Jesus said, you can tell a false prophet by their fruit. I'm not making a judgment. I'm just making an evaluation. That's not a judgment. I'm just saying this is what it's like. So in that sense, we do judge all the time. What he means by this is you and I should never have a condescending, condemning, censorship attitude. That's what he's saying here. And when people do wrong to us, we need to learn how to be forgiving. That's what he's talking about. He goes on to say here, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So what Jesus is saying is the way you uh, think about people that's, God's going to use the standard that you're using against people on you. Okay, how many see this? As a matter of fact, he says this about forgiveness. He says, if you don't forgive, I won't forgive you. Doesn't he say that in the Lord's Prayer? So whatever you're dishing out, God says you're getting back. It's a boomerang. It's coming right back at you. So you better evaluate the way you're looking at things and say, you know, I need to be a lot more gracious, a lot more loving, more understanding. I need to help people understand, you know, if, if we're walking around judging people, how are they going to know that God cares about them and loves them? It's, they're not going to get it. They're not going to understand that. He also told them this parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? How many know the answer? It's a rhetorical question, obviously. What's the answer? Well, no, you're going you're gonna to have problems. You're going to both, they said these, they're both falling to the pit. So you need to have some sort of vision here. Then he goes on to say this, a student, this is where our text is, a student's not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained, fully mature, fully developed will be like his teacher. In this case, we will be like Jesus. You know, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? <laughs> wow. He goes on to say, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So what is he telling us? He's not telling us not to address issues in other people, okay, number one. But what he's telling us really simply is, how many notice that the things that usually irk you, you may not know this, but it's maybe a mirror shining back at you? Ouch. Everybody follow what I'm saying? There's a lot of, you know, some people, that doesn't bug me. That bugs me. 
Usually the thing that bugs me is because it's almost like a mirror. I'm looking at myself, and I don't like looking at it. So here's the deal that Jesus is telling us. Okay, if something is bothering you about somebody, step one, don't even bother going to them. Examine yourself and go, oh, I can see why it's bothering me. It's probably something in my own life. I better deal with it in myself. After having done, dealt with it, then I go to that person and then I help them deal with the same issue in their life as I've addressed it in my life. How many can see that's a good approach? As a matter of fact, it says you who are spiritual, you need to go to people who are overtaken in a fault. But he gives us a prerequisite how to go about doing that. He says, consider yourselves first. In other words, here's the thing. We need to go with in gentleness. I, I'll tell you what I try to do when I'm correcting somebody. I always say to myself, okay, let's reverse roles for a minute. This person's gonna correct me. How would I want them to correct me? I need to be corrected, but how would I like them to do it? Would I like them to come storming in, screaming at the top of their lungs, upset and angry? That's gonna really, really motivate me to change? Or would I rather have somebody come in and say, hey, you know, this is, I'm noticing something. This is probably gonna be detrimental. You may wanna adjust this in your life. How would you like them to say it to you? See, I think we need to speak the truth in love. That's the thing that I'm trying to get across today. Uh, Jesus was actually addressing the religious leaders of his day who were dealing with the sin issues in other people's lives in a very condescending manner. And Jesus uses this hyperbole. I mean, you know, nobody's got a plank in their eye. But that's, that's an exaggerated form of speech. He's making a point. He's giving us this idea that we've got to address what's in our lives first before we deal with other people. He's speaking about spiritual vision here, which must, we must have in order to help other people or else we'll be leading them astray. This message is not just a warning for leaders, but for all of us. We need to have spiritual clarity and a loving attitude before we can address the issues in other people's lives. You know, where there is no, uh, well, in, our hearts need to be motivated by a loving heart. Can we see that? And where there is no love, truth becomes a severe form of censorship, a critical and judgmental heart. You know, a lot of people can see the problems in our world. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to see problems. What we really need are people who see solutions. I mean, no, solutions are different than problems. And we need people who can see the solution that can be addressed in a gracious, loving way. Because people are more apt to follow you to a loving solution than they are to a judgmental, critical solution. It's just human nature. That's the way we're wired. You know, I love the story that Lou Gareth, Gareth uh, shared regarding this attitude of loving people. He said, Back in the 1960s, when that, during that Jesus revolutionary period when the hippies were getting saved, there was a young college student by the name of Bill. And he was a brand new Christian. He was going to a campus Bible study. And across the street was this really well-dressed, very conservative church. And one day, Bill decided to go to church. But he came, wild hair, blue jeans, old t-shirt with holes, barefoot, and late. So he walks into the church, place is packed, he heads down the aisle looking for a seat, can't find one, walks right to the front, and having nearly reached the pulpit, he realizes no empty seats, so he squats down on the carpet at the very front of the church. Now, how many know as he's walking in, everybody's paying attention? He's got everybody's attention because he's late, right? Uh, 
there's a quiet tension in the church. Finally, from the back of the church, an old gray-haired gentleman in a suit with his cane walks down in his late 80s, and no one is expecting this guy to understand this college kid, you know, blue jeans, radish t-shirt. He comes right down, puts his cane down, flops down, lowers himself with great difficulty next to Bill. When the minister now was beginning his sermon, he said, what I'm about to preach to you, you'll never remember. What you just saw today, you'll probably never forget. The older gentleman understood what I'm talking about today. It's the spirit of Jesus embracing and loving people and accepting them right where they're at. You know what's so damaging about a judgmental attitude? Is that it's underlying it is an attitude of anger and contempt. You know, Dallas Willard explains these two conditions of the heart and how it affects relationships. He says, some degree of malice is contained in every degree of anger. That is why it always hurts us when someone is angry at us. We can and usually do choose or will to be angry. This is interesting. It's a choice we're making. Anger first arises spontaneously, but we can actively receive it or decide to indulge it, and we usually do indulge it. What he's saying is, it says, be angry. Anger is not a sin. Be angry, but don't sin. In other words, how am I going to address this situation? We may even become an angry person because we allow anger to have control in our lives, and any incident can evoke from us a torrent of rage that is kept in constant readiness. Anger indulged, instead of simply waved off, always has in it an element of self-righteousness and vanity. Find a person who has embraced anger and you'll find a person with a wounded ego. But then he goes on and say, but contempt is a greater evil than anger and is so deserving of greater condemnation. That's why Jesus said, whoever says raka to his brother shall stand condemned before the Sanhedrin, which by the way is the highest court in the land. The Aramaic term raka was current in Jesus' day to express contempt for someone and to mark out him or her as contemptible. In anger, we're saying, I want to hurt you. In contempt, we're saying, I don't care whether you're hurt or not. We can be angry at someone without denying their worth, but contempt makes it easier for us to hurt them or see them further degraded. Our verbal arsenal is loaded with contemptuous terms. The intent and the effect of contempt is always to exclude someone, push them away, leave them out, and isolate them. But those who are excluded are thereby made fair game for worse treatment. You ever wonder why people abuse people? I'm giving you the reason. They're showing them contempt. He says, conversely, respect automatically builds a wall against mistreatment. If we respect a person, we will never mistreat them. But if we, show, if we have contempt for a person, we shall. In family battles, the progression is nearly always from anger to contempt. And it's always expressed in vile language and eventually leads to physical brutality. This is very important to understand the progression that happens when we don't address these things. He goes on to say, once contempt is established, however, it seems to justify the initial anger and increases its force. Now we're talking about in the minds of the perpetrator. They, they feel justified in abusing people because they're not addressing the, the problem in their own heart. So, 
The issue of becoming like Jesus then is actually a hard issue. But when our hearts are wrong and we don't address those things in our lives, oh, sorry, a, a disciple of Jesus cannot leave his heart unattended without issues of anger, censorship, or contempt. These must be addressed through confession of sin and a pursuit after God's love. And so I was just going to say, we see the issue of becoming like Jesus as an issue of heart. It's always a heart issue. When our hearts are wrong, when our hearts are filled with woundedness, vanity, anger, contempt of others, and a judgmental spirit, the question we face is, how can we address those issues? How should I respond to my sinfulness? I think that's why this sermon is going to be really powerful because I'm explaining to you why we need to do this and how to go about it. It always begins with an acknowledgement of the problem. How many know if you're ever going to address something in your life, you have to admit it's there? A lot of people pretend they don't have a problem. That's denial, folks. Yeah, no, Richard, don't, I'll talk to you after the service. We'll talk about it after. After. Talk to you after. Yeah, if we confess our sins, the Bible says, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Okay, so let's take a look at what does this really mean if we confess our sins? Because you know, a lot of times in our lives, we, we do say we're sorry, but nothing changes in our lives. So how do we bring about this transformation that God is wanting to bring about in our life? What's hindering that transformation from occurring? But it's not just the need to turn from these sin issues alone, but what is even needed is a turning to something greater than our sin. That's what we need to understand. So when you look at the idea of repentance in the book of Thessalonians, it says they turned from their idols to a, the true and the living God. There was a turn to something greater than the idol, the thing that they were dealing with before. And it's true in biblical repentance. And therefore, when you and I have an issue in our life, whatever that sin issue is, no matter how challenging, it could be addiction issues or whatever the issue is, we need to say there's a power greater than those things when we turn to God and turn to a different avenue. I'll give you an example. Paul writing to the Ephesians in chapter four said it this way. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully. You see, it's one thing to say, I'm sorry for telling a lie. It's another thing to deal with lying as an issue in our life. How do we do that? We turn away from lying and we begin to speak the truth. What about anger? In your anger, do not sin. So he never says anger is a sin. Anger says that there's something that needs to be addressed. But how we express ourselves is really critical at that moment. So anger is a motivation to do something or say something, but we need to do it in the right way. Now, he goes on to say, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Now, a lot of people have been taught this in marriages. You know, if you have, you're angry with your spouse, you know, then you're supposed to work it out before the, you know, the next day rolls around. I don't think that's exactly what Paul is saying there. This is what I think he's saying. He's saying, don't let the anger, uh, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. In other words, the person who is angry needs to deal with themselves before the sun comes back up. You know, you can't expect the spouse to, you know, work through the issue because you're still angry. That's not gonna happen, folks. And I think a lot of people have expectations of each other that are unrealistic. And they start demanding things like, you need to understand where I'm coming from. 
I want to just dispel something in your minds. A lot of us have the wrong understanding about how to have healthy relationships. And I'll give it to you this way. You know, this person needs to understand me. No, no. You need to understand them. You see, we've got to stop expecting other people to do something for us. We need to be the change. We need to change. Listen to the prayer of St. Francis again. Lord, help me not so much uh, to be understood as to understand. Help me not so much to, you know, be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. You see, you and I need to understand something. We need to, you know, help the other individual rather than say, you know, I need to be understood. Well, that's true. We all need to be understood. God understands us. But to demand other people to understand us is wrong. We need to work at moving outside of ourselves and try to understand the other person. That's where spiritual growth really begins to happen in our life. So as a matter of fact, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Here's somebody taking something. What he's saying is, no, you need to learn how to give something. It's the opposite behavior. Now, well, or the last one, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who are listening. So you're not speaking for your benefit, you're speaking for their benefit. You're lifting them up rather than tearing them down. Secondly, we need to follow a different type of attitude and behavior. Paul says in Corinthians, follow the way of love. Or the last chapter, do everything in love. And when you read 1 Corinthians 13, we see that we're to, what we're to pursue. Now, Dallas Willard in his book, Divine Comparency, says, it is then hard to do the things with which Jesus illustrates the kingdom, a heart of love. Is it hard then to do that? Or the things that Paul says love does? Is it hard to do that? Well, then he goes on to say simply this. Uh, it is very hard indeed if you've not been substantially transformed in the depths of your being, in the intricacies of your thoughts, feelings, assurances, and disposition in such a way that you're permeated with love. What is he saying? He's saying, unless you and I have been changed on the inside, we're not gonna express the good stuff on the outside. If you and I don't experience love on the inside and we become loving on the inside, we're never gonna show love on the outside. That's what he's explaining. In other words, once love has apprehended us because we've been giving ourselves to practicing love, we change at the deepest levels of our being. This is very powerful. It's talking about transformation here. How do I change, Pastor? It's got to go deep within us. Now, I always say to people, how can you know what God's like if you never read the Bible? You're not going to know. How do you know what the right heart attitude is? How do you know what you're supposed to do? How do you know what it's like being like Jesus if you never read the scriptures? That's where you're going to find it. That's where you discover it. And what I've discovered over the years is when I'm reading scripture, you know, Sometimes I don't even know if I'm getting anything, but I know I am because the Bible says his word does not come back without some sort of change in my life. So God, we're inputting, we're inputting. It's like a computer, you keep inputting stuff. Eventually this good stuff starts coming back out of your own life. You're starting to change, it's very powerful. Now, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he prayed, Father, forgive them because they do not understand what they're doing, that was not hard for Jesus to do. What would have been hard for him to do would have been to curse his enemies and spew forth vileness and evil upon everyone. 
How many know that would that be uncharacteristic of who he is? He calls us to impart himself to us. He does not call us to do what he did, but to be as he was, permeated with love. In other words, you know, a lot of times in Christianity, people are trying to get people to conform outwardly to the right thing, and it doesn't work. It's like add-ons. What Christianity is really telling us is that when you receive Christ, God's going to change you from the inside out. He's going to change your nature. He's going to change you from the, the wrong attitudes. He wants to get at the very core of our being so that eventually we become what he wants us to become. And we begin to act in the way he wants us to act because we're being changed at the most fundamental level of our essence, of our being. Then the doing of what he did and said becomes the natural expression of who we are in him. Let me move on to the second snapshot that Luke gives us. And that, that's what produces genuine spirituality. The behavior of a person is determined by the condition of their heart. We would call it our personality, the heart, the real you. Jesus says that what's on the inside will eventually be revealed on the outside. He says, no good tree bears bad fruit. No bad tree bears good fruit. Every tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. What's inside comes out. That's what Jesus is telling us, you know. So we must begin with confession of our sins, but then we discipline our life to live a life of love until those patterns of thoughts become actions. You know, if you're meditating on God's word day and night, as the psalmist says, you're going to become successful. Why? Because you're feeding your mind a different way of thinking. I don't know if you know what's going on in our world today. The world society is going after the heart and mind of people. It's trying to capture your minds. If it captures your minds, it's going to affect how you're going to behave. You see, it's the opposite of what God's trying to do. God's doing the same thing, but in the opposite way. He's trying to bring renewal on the inside so it changes our behavior on the outside. That's what he's talking about. And so discipline is the other side, really, of discipleship, according to Henry Nouwen. And that's why it's so important that we develop spiritual disciplines in our lives, like Bible reading and study and meditation and prayer and giving and serving. We're not doing those things to get God's acceptance. A lot of Christians do it that way. Can I make a statement? You're already accepted by God. You're already loved by God. God can't love you any more than he does right now. It's already there for you. It's out of the, once we understand that, once we receive that, it's out of that that we do these things. It says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. That's how you know. But I, I want to just say it this way. Uh, I'm going to move past these scriptures for just a moment and go right to here. I like what Henry Nouwen once said in an interview. He says, I cannot continuously say no to this or no to that unless there's something 10 times more attractive to choose. This is such a powerful thought. He's saying, saying no to my lusts, my greed, my needs, and the world's powers takes an enormous amount of energy. The only hope is to find something so obviously real and attractive that I can devote all of my energies to saying yes. Okay, are we following what I'm saying here? So, a lot of times when we're struggling with something, we're saying, I, gotta, I can't do this, I can't do this. What we should be doing is focusing on what I should be doing. But I'm turning my back on this, I'm going, there's gotta be something that's attracting me far greater than what I once was attracted to. That's what he's telling us. 
One such thing I can say yes to is when I come in touch with the fact that I'm, I am loved. As a matter of fact, he goes on, once I have found that in my total brokenness I'm still loved, I can come free from the compulsions of doing successful things. So we're not practicing the disciplines to be loved, rather we practice them because we know that we are loved and we see them as a vehicle or an avenue to come and bring us closer to Jesus. In other words, we get to know him. We get to know who he is. Now, you know, one of the thoughts that really impacted me, I think we need to catch a vision of God's love. That's the greatest need we have. That's going to be my prayer for you today. Watch what happens. This is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, long, high, deep is the love of Christ. And to know, I added this little word in the bracket. I don't think this is bad. I'll tell you why. If I was translating this verse, I'd probably, and to experience this love. You see, I think one of the problems is we've been told intellectually that God loves us. But that's a lot different than experiencing it. How many say that's true? Big difference between hearing it and experiencing it. Let me give you the difference so that you may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of Christ. Here, here's how I look at it. You could actually learn about a bicycle. You could read all the books on bicycles. You could actually know every make and model of every bicycle. You could tell me how it all works. You could explain to me. You've read everything. You're an expert on bicycles. The only problem is you've never ridden one. Okay? So after a while, you may think you're riding a bike. You've, got, you've known everything. You know everything there is to know about a bicycle. You know at what speed to go so you don't, you know, you don't fall one side or the other. You can, you can have all that information, but it's not doing anything. But how many know getting on the bike is a whole new experience? It changes everything. You know, I'm going to say this to all of us. You know when you're starting to learn a good behavior? You're, you're making a choice. You say, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie anymore. I'm going to speak the truth. You know, every time we change a behavior, how many know it's awkward? It doesn't seem natural. Actually, riding a bike at first seems really awkward. Anybody remember back when you were first learning how to ride a bicycle? It was awkward. You just felt like you were going to fall all the time. Boy, you were scared to go too fast. How many know you didn't want to go fast at all, but the problem with not going fast enough is you never got going. You were always falling, you know? And you didn't know if you could steer and you were shaky and you didn't know when you, you're, you're trying to think, I got to do this. And I'm just talking, you know, the bikes just with the, you know, no speeds when you just pull it back and that's the brakes. I mean, you're starting out. That's the way it was. You're, it's really abnormal. You know, within about a week of riding that bicycle, you're just riding everywhere. How many are not even thinking about riding a bike? It's just now intuitive to you how to do it. And it's the same thing with God when we start to experience God's love and we start to do the opposite of what we had once done and we start practicing what God is telling us. We're going, I know I'm supposed to be doing this and instead of letting my emotions dictate if I'm gonna feel like I'm doing it or not, I'm just gonna do what he's telling me to do. And it seems abnormal and awkward at first, but eventually it just becomes the way I operate. And eventually when somebody comes along and says something nasty to you, the first response no longer is frustration, defensiveness, or anger. The first, next, first fr response is forgiveness and kindness. What's happened? You were changed on the inside. You have something that's greater that's affecting your life. But let me move on to the last snapshot, which is the obedient life. You know, Jesus' life was done according to the will of God. 
You know, the book of Hebrews quotes Psalm 40. It's a beautiful passage. We read it, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, here am I, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll, speaking about Jesus. I desire to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Or the King James says, I delight to do your will. Isn't that beautiful? You know, I want to do what pleases God. I enjoy doing what pleases God. You know, I can always tell when people uh, are Christians. Number one, they want to do the right thing. Number two, when they feel bad that they've done the wrong thing, I go, that's Christian. Non-Christians don't even think about it. They don't think about doing the right thing. They don't care about doing the wrong thing. They don't have any feeling about it. Christians have feelings about this. Why? Because all of a sudden we have a new heart, a new nature. We're desiring to please God. That's what's driving our lives. I want to please God. Now listen to what it says. Let's go back to that passage there that Matthew was talking about in closing. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I say? How many get the idea that you can't say Jesus is Lord in your life if you're not doing his will? Doing the will of God is critical. I'm going to show you what he's like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. Here's the person that experiences it. It's doing what's being said. It may feel awkward, but I'm going to do it anyways. He said, he's like a man building a house who dug down deep, laid the foundation on a rock, and when a flood came, the torrent struck the house, but that house could not be shaken because it was well built. It wasn't destroyed. It was able to stand the storm. See it? Look at the next story. But the one who hears my words and can come to church every week and listen and listen and listen, but doesn't put it into practice. It's like a guy who builds his house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck, the storms, the problems, the difficulties, the trials, it collapses. This destruction is complete. What we discover from the summary by Jesus is that storms come to all of us. You see, we got to get out of this mentality that I'm a Christian now, I don't deserve these storms. No, don't think that way. Get out of that thinking. You know what I say? Everybody's life, and I read it this morning, your road that you're walking on, God designed for you. You can't even understand what God's doing in your life. You're all experiencing different things. You all have different trials and different temptations and different storms. Everyone in this room, that's true. But all of those storms, it's not that God is against you. Don't ever ask the question, why, if, why, why is God letting this happen to me? Doesn't he love me? Of course he loves you. He died on the cross for you. That's not the wrong question. Why is the storm there? It's a test. You see, in life, you have tests. I know nobody likes tests, but in this case, it's either P or F, pass or fail. You pass the test when you do what God tells you to do, and all of a sudden, you're strong, and you go through that situation. Your character is revealed for what it is. Storms reveal what you really are. The way you're handling your storm is revealing the, the nature, the maturity, and the condition of your character. That's what's going on. So are we truly living our lives in submission and obedience to his words and therefore are being transformed in our character? You know, sometimes, uh, well, the problem is not the problems from the outside. The issue is of the heart. So all of the troubles we're having, that's not the real problem. Problems aren't the problem. That's what I'm telling you. The problem is inside of us. You know, sometimes we excuse relatively minor flaws in people, especially if they've done something extraordinary for God. But God doesn't just want extraordinary good works from us. He wants obedience in the small things. That's critical with God. As a matter of fact, um, one of the desert monks, the fourth century uh, monk named Agatho said, if an angry man raises the dead, God is still displeased with his anger. <laughs> How's that? 
So, you know, sometimes we look at something, we excuse people because they've done this good thing. I go, no, you can't do that. God is looking at character. Albert Herbert was a lecturer, and he spoke in the 1930s around North America, and he says, as we grow better, we meet better people. What's he mean by that? It means that the better you become, the better you'll treat others. You'll see people differently. That's what he's saying to us there. And Terry Muck, I'm going to close with his quote. He says, isn't it true that our judgment of others are really reflecting ourselves? Our own attitudes alter our impressions of others. Our shortcomings spur our recognition of the shortcomings of others. But our companionship with Christ can help us grow better than anything else. No higher standards can be found than his. Yet his high aspirations are accompanied by equally strong understanding, love, and forgiveness. Christianity is an ongoing experience, a life being lived, a process of growth, constantly seeking his will and way which changes us. An occasional gesture toward him actually accomplishes little. Regular worship, continuous exposure to Bible, working with others, striving to be effective members of God's church promotes rapid growth. And it's amazing how much better other folks become when we do that growing ourselves. It's just another way of saying it, right? Becoming like Jesus means my attitudes towards others changes for the better. I actually love people. That's what has to happen. I begin to live a more disciplined life, obedient to God's will. The result is I'm living a life beyond myself, extending out towards others, motivated out of a heart of God's love. Let's stand. You know, as I was sharing this morning with the first service, I shared these thoughts. Every head bowed this morning. How many here, you know, it's really hard to love people when you don't like yourself. How many here, just with every head bowed, it's between you and God. We're going to pray for you today. I'm going to give a number of things. You don't even love yourself. That's you. Just raise your hand. I want to pray with you. You struggle with just loving yourself. I want to pray. God will heal that. You know what that means? You have never really fully accepted God's love. I want you to think of it this way. Why can't, if God can love you, why can't you love yourself? It's called forgiving yourself. I think a lot of people struggle with that. You know, they can receive, they say, well, I've received God's forgiveness, but I can't forgive myself. I, I, I want you to know, none of us are greater than God. If he can love you and forgive you, you need to love and forgive yourself. Step one. Some of you probably are just really struggling with issues in your soul right now. And you're saying, you know what? I just feel like I live in a life of compulsion. I'm struggling with these addictions or behaviors that are unhealthy. And I know they're sinful and I'm stuck there. And I want to move off that center. I'm going to challenge you today. If that's you, just raise your hand. I want to just say something to you right now. help you. Here's the deal. We're not here to condemn anybody. Jesus isn't here to condemn you. He's here to save you today. He wants you to develop a love, an opposing love, a displacing love of the thing that's holding you down. I believe that. You know, I shared some examples from Ephesians 4 there. That's what he wants to do. God wants to do that in your life. This is very powerful stuff. Let's pray today, all of us, which includes all of us. Say, Lord, I want to see transformation in my life. I confess before you my great need for you. I pray that you will give me such a love for you 
that it will displace my love of lesser things. Things that are holding me back and keeping me from becoming the person you're calling me to be. To be just like you. We thank you for that, Father. We thank you this morning that you're, uh, you have given us your amazing love. And now I pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters that they would experience that love, not just hear about it, but I pray today, I covet for them today that they would experience your love in such a way that it would fill up all the broken places, all the wounded places, all the crushed places, all the violated places of their lives. You would just fill them with love. Just fill them with your love today, Father, so that they would flow and operate out of a heart of love. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.